You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, March 10th reading of the Boulder, Longmont, and Northern Colorado News. My name is Jerry Jengra. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Option for Occupancy Modifications Favored, written by Annie Mel. Biden Rolls Out Plan Challenges GOP to Follow Suit, written by Darlene Superville and Josh Boak. And Snowpack is Beating 30-Year Norm as Spring Nears, written by Bruce Finley. And following up with miscellaneous articles. City Council, option for occupancy modifications favored. Officials also prepare for tribal nations consultation. After a ballot measure that aimed to update Boulder's occupancy limits failed, the Boulder City Council on Thursday night brought the topic back for discussion and reviewed several staff-proposed options for modifying the code while ensuring it meets community expectations. Last year, the Council made occupancy reform a high-priority project as it continues to look at ways to address its shortage of not just affordable housing, but housing as a whole. The rule, which has been in place since the 1970s, allows no more than three unrelated people in most parts of Boulder to live together. During a staff presentation Thursday night, Carl Geiler, Boulder Senior Policy Advisor, laid out several options that staff asked the City Council to narrow down. The options presented were increasing the number of occupants allowed in all zones by one person, increasing the occupants to four or five unrelated people citywide, only allowing increased occupancy in single-family districts within owner-occupied units, only increasing occupancy in non-single-family zones or for non-single-family units, increasing occupancy in certain areas near the University of Colorado Boulder, or leaving the ordinance the same. Geiler said other cities in the U.S. use the square feet of a unit to determine an occupancy limit, which Boulder staff believe would overcomplicate the modification and possibly lead to enforcement challenges. Anything that comes down to a numeric change in the number of persons is a relatively easy thing to change in the code relative to a lot of exceptions or complicated language he said, ahead of a Thursday study session. When it came to narrowing down the options, council members' initial preferences varied from removing all occupancy regulations, but not one of the original staff proposed options, to developing an occupancy program based off what a majority of residents want and then holding a referendum, also not one of staff's recommended options. Ultimately, a majority of the city council chose option two, increasing the occupants to four or five unrelated people citywide, with a majority of council members wanting to see it expanded to five occupants, but with everyone open to changing their preference depending on community feedback. Next, staff will take the options to the Planning Board and Housing Advisory Board and will also begin another community engagement process to get residents' take on the option being considered after receiving mixed feedback during a February 22nd outreach event, Geiler said. In other discussion, the Council also heard from Ernest House with the Keystone Policy Center in preparation for the upcoming consultation with representatives of the area tribal nations. Boulder first began annual consultations with tribal representatives in the 1990s, but the meetings were paused until 2019. The indigenous nations in the Boulder Valley include Apache, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Comanche, Kiowa, Pawnee, Sulsuni, Sioux, and Ute. 
The two-day consultation will be held Wednesday and Thursday and will focus on updating a memorandum of understanding between Boulder and the tribal nations. Some potential updates include exploring the possibility of a dedicated permanent site on city land for sacred ceremonies, identifying city land that can be used for the limited harvesting of plants for personal use by tribal members, and inviting tribal nations to participate in ongoing consultation and guidance on cultural resources on city open space to avoid significant impacts, and identify areas where projects and activities may require tribal notification. Related to commitments outlined in the proposed MOU updates are several projects Boulder is also working with the tribal nations on, one of which includes in-person interviews with tribal representatives who will share stories about their cultural, spiritual, and historical connections to the Boulder Valley. What this report seeks to do is to help the community develop education and interpretation materials to help provide accurate Indigenous people stories, said Philip Yates, spokesperson for the city. Another project aims to address old Indigenous-related educated and interpretive signs on the city's open space and mountain park system, according to the staff memo. Recently, city staff received guidance to remove remaining settlers' parks signs since it was renamed the People's Crossing. City Council member Nicole Spear said she looks forward to next week's consultation and beginning to build and expand relationships with the tribal nations. I really appreciate this work so much and that we're continuing to build these relationships and that we are learning the stories of this land and that we're starting the many generations of work that it is going to take to repair some of the harm that we've done and continue to do so, she said. Federal Budget Biden rolls out plan challenges GOP to follow suit. As political gridlock puts the government at risk of defaulting, President Joe Biden on Thursday made an opening bid with a budget plan that would cut deficits by $2.9 trillion over the next decade, a proposal that Republicans already intend to reject. It's part of a broader attempt by the president to call out House Republicans who are demanding severe cuts to spending in return for lifting the government's legal borrowing limit. But the GOP has no counteroffer so far other than a flat no to a Biden blueprint with tax increases on the wealthy that could form the policy backbone of Biden's yet-to-be-declared campaign for re-election in 2024. Striding around a stage at a union training center in Philadelphia, Biden seemed to be in full campaign mode as he spoke about his plan for the government's finances and how his values contrasted with Republican priorities. I just laid out the bulk of my budget, Biden said. Republicans in Congress should do the same thing. Then we can sit down and see where we disagree. Yet the president doubled that. GOP lawmakers could make their numbers match their calls for a balanced budget, and he suggested that any efforts to do so could come at the expense of middle-class families. How are they going to make the math work, Biden said? What are they going to cut? Biden's package of tax and spending priorities is unlikely to pass the GOP-run House or Senate, where Democrats hold a slim edge as proposed. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, R. California, said the president's proposed deficit reduction was inadequate. It just seems like it's going to create a, the biggest government in history. I don't think that's what we need at this time, he said. In addition to deficit reduction, Biden's 10-year budget largely revolves around the idea of taxing the wealthy. 
to help fund programs for the middle class, older adults, and families. It would raise $4.7 trillion from higher taxes, with an additional $800 billion in savings from changes to programs. The tax increases include a reversal of the 2017 tax cuts made by President Donald Trump on people earning more than $400,000 a year. Biden has floated a new 25% minimum tax on households worth $100 million or more. Also, the tax that companies pay on stock buybacks would rise fourfold, and those earning more than $400,000 would pay an additional Medicare tax that would help to keep the program solvent beyond the year 2050. Medicare could negotiate on the prices of more prescription drugs, helping to save the government money. Accompanying that would be $2.6 trillion worth of new spending, including the restoration of the expanded child tax credit that would give families as much as $3,600 per child, compared with the current level of 2000 that credit would be fully refundable, which means households could receive all of that sum even if they don't owe any taxes. The budget proposal would impose a $35 a month cap on insulin prices, matching a change that Biden already put in place for Medicare recipients. At a time of increased tensions with Russia and China, the budget shows a decline in military spending as a share of the U.S. economy over the next decade. But federal spending would be equal to roughly one quarter of economic output as the spending on Social Security and Medicare climbs, essentially keeping the government the same size as it is currently. The budget would seek to close the carried interest loophole that allows wealthy hedge fund managers and others to pay their taxes at a lower rate and prevent billionaires from being able to set aside large amounts of their holdings in tax-favored retirement accounts. The plan also projects saving $24 billion over 10 years by removing a tax subsidy for cryptocurrency transactions. McCarthy has called for putting the U.S. government on a path toward a balanced budget. But by refusing to raise taxes or cut Social Security and Medicare spending, GOP lawmakers face some harsh math that makes it hard to reduce deficits without risking a voter backlash before a presidential election. He has said his plan's release was pushed back because Biden's proposal was only now coming out. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, expressed skepticism that McCarthy has any coherent plan that House Republicans can coalesce around. Enough with the dodging, enough with the excuses, Schumer said. Show us your plan, and then show us how it's going to get 218 votes on your side of the aisle. Biden's deficit reduction goal is significantly higher than the $2 trillion that he had promised in his State of the Union address last month. With the economy already in a fragile state because of high inflation, if Biden and Congress cannot agree to raise the statutory debt cap of $31.4 trillion by this summer, the government could default on payments and perhaps shove the country into a recession. The budget also shows the shadow of Trump's legacy, as provisions in his 2017 tax cuts will expire after 2025. Biden wants to eliminate elements of that overhaul, arguing that lower taxes failed to produce the growth that Trump promised. But Biden's budget does not address tax cuts that benefited households making less than $400,000. Their expiration could amount to a tax increase that would violate a pledge by Biden to only raise taxes on the wealthy. Based off the data, the cost of extending the tax breaks for people making less than $400,000 would be $1.5 trillion, according to Kyle Pomerlow, a senior fellow at the center-right American Enterprise Institute. That would have 
the deficit savings being promoted by Biden. But Pomerleau cautioned that his estimates might be high because the president's plan includes the cost of the expanded child tax credit. Biden's proposal would increase the top marginal tax rate to 39.6% on income above $400,000 for households with $1 million in income, earnings from capital gains such as stocks or property sales, would no longer enjoy a discounted tax rate compared with wages. The president would increase the corporate tax rate to 28% and increase the tax rate on U.S. multinationals' foreign earnings from 10.5% to 21%. Water. Snowpack is beating 30-year norm as spring nears. Colorado Mountain snowpack measured above normal in early March, a few weeks before the closely watched seasonal peak, except in the Arkansas River Basin, where lagging snow could head to low water flows. The snowpack tracked by federal snow surveyors appeared relatively promising, with the latest data showing the overall statewide level at 120% of the norm, which is based on a 30-year average between 1991 and 2020. In particular, watersheds that feed the heavily tapped Colorado River held above-average snow, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture Natural Resources Conservation Service snow survey data. We still have a little bit more of winter to go, and then we will have the early spring and early summer precipitation that could give us a boost. If we do get a good spring, things could get better, snow surveyor supervisor Brian DeMoncos said. But things could go the other way, too. Snow on Colorado's mountains typically peaks between March and mid-April and serves as a natural slow-release source of water essential to sustain urban settlement and agriculture in the West. Around April 1st, Colorado Front Range cities and food growers on the eastern plains traditionally have calculated whether water supplies through summer will be sufficient for people, crops, and cattle based on mountain snow. Agriculture uses about 85% of Colorado's water supply. Urban water consumption per person has been decreasing, though the state's overall population has been increasing at faster than the national rate. Denver water utility officials last week measured water storage in their reservoirs at 82%, above average for early March. The utility officials also noted in an agency website posting that soil in the watersheds where Denver water draws water isn't as dry as last year. Long-term droughts can have soil so dry that it quickly absorbs water from melting snow before the water reaches streams and rivers. Climate warming has been shrinking mountain snowpack and reducing runoff into streams. Atmospheric scientists have projected a sharply reduced contribution of melting snow in the Colorado River Basin, a main source for 40 million people and agriculture producers across seven states, including California. Around Colorado, Snowpack in the Colorado River Basin measured 118% of the norm the federal data show. Southwestern Colorado had the most snow with levels in the combined San Miguel, Dolores, Animas, and San Juan River Basins at 138% of normal. The South Platte River watershed, crucial for cities including Denver and food producers in the most populated parts of northeastern Colorado, had 103% of normal snowpack. Along the upper Rio Grande River in southern Colorado, snowpack measured 107% of the norm. The Gunnison River Basin had snow at 136% of the norm, the Yampa and White Rivers 133%, and the Laramie and North Platte Rivers 120%. But the Arkansas River Basin snowpack measured 73% of the norm, the data show. 
From headwaters above Buena Vista and Salida to the southeastern plains out to Kansas, cities, towns, farmers, and ranchers rely on Arkansas river water flows through the summer. Senate hearing. Railroad CEO sorry, but avoids specifics. Norfolk Southern CEO earnestly apologized before Congress on Thursday for last month's fiery hazardous materials train derailment on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border and pledged millions of dollars to help the local town recover. But he stopped short of fully endorsing tougher safety regulations or specific commitments to pay for long-term health and economic harm. In a packed Senate hearing, CEO Alan Shaw said his railroad firmly supports the goal of improving rail safety, but he also defended his company's record. He was questioned closely by both Democrats and Republicans about specific comments to pay for long-term health and economic harm and about the decision-making that led to the release and burn of toxic vinyl chloride from five tanker cars, as well as the company's commitment to safety and helping the people of East Palestine, Ohio. I'm terribly sorry for the impact this derailment has had on the folks of that community, Shaw told the Senate Committee on Environment and Public Works. We're going to be there for as long as it takes to help East Palestine thrive and recover. But the condolences and commitment of $20 million in aid so far hardly satisfied lawmakers or several East Palestine residents who traveled to Washington for the hearing. How do we trust that man with our health and the health of our children when he won't even answer the questions that we need answered, said Jamie Kotza, adding that her family continues to suffer from illnesses over a month after the derailment. The company has announced several voluntary safety upgrades. Senators, however, are looking to act themselves as they investigate the derailment, the Biden administration's response, and the company's safety practices after the toppling of 38 rail cars, including 11 carrying hazardous materials. Norfolk Southern is also under pressure from federal regulators. The National Transportation Safety Board and Federal Railroad Administration both announced investigations this week of the East Palestine derailment and other accidents, including the death of a train conductor Tuesday. Just Thursday, a Norfolk Southern train derailed in Alabama. Company and local officials said there was no threat to the public. In the East Palestine crash, no one was injured, but half of the roughly 5,000 local residents were evacuated. Scenes of billowing smoke above the town, alongside complaints from residents that they are still suffering from illnesses, have turned national attention to railroad safety and the ways dangerous materials are transported. It's all sparked a show of bipartisanship in the Senate. The committee on Thursday also heard from Ohio and Pennsylvania Senators Republican J.D. Vance and Democrats Sherrod Brown and Bob Casey, who are proposing new safety regulations under a Railway Safety Act of 2023. Trained railments have been getting less common, but there were still more than 1,000 last year, according to data the Federal Railroad Administration. And as East Palestine shows, even a single train derailment involving hazardous materials can be disastrous. Hazardous materials shipments account for 7% to 8% of the roughly 30 million shipments railroads deliver across the U.S. each year. But railroads often mix shipments and might have one or two cars of hazardous materials on almost any train. The Association of American Railroads trade groups says 99% of hazardous materials shipments reach their destinations safely. The Senate Commerce Committee will also hear from Norfolk Southern's Shaw, as well as NTSB Chair Jennifer Homendy in another hearing later this month. That committee is also expected to consider the proposed safety regulations. 
Shaw is backing proposals to tighten standards for tank cars that the railroads don't own, expand hazardous materials training for first responders, and establish standards for the trackside detectors railroads use to spot problems. The company has also said it's adding approximately 200 hot bearing detectors to its network. The NTSB has said a detector warned the crew operating the train that derailed February 3rd outside East Palestine, but they couldn't stop the train before more than three dozen cars came off the tracks and caught fire. Some lawmakers want to push beyond voluntary safety upgrades. The Railway Safety Act of 2023, which has gained support from Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, would require more hot-bearing detectors to be installed, set limits on train length, and make sure railroads notify states about the hazardous materials they are transporting. Some Republicans have hesitated to support the proposal. Resisting efforts to impose new regulations. Vance, an Ohio senator who first won election last November, slammed those in his party who have dismissed this bill, saying they are ignoring a shift in the GOP to appeal to blue-collar voters. We have a choice. Are we for big business and big government, or are we for the people of East Palestine, he said. Republicans at the same time are more eager to delve into the emergency response to the East Palestine derailment. Thursday's hearing also featured environment protection officials from the federal, state, and local levels. They acknowledged communication problems in the days immediately after the derailment, including around the decision to release and burn the vinyl chloride. Republicans have criticized President Joe Biden for not visiting the community in the aftermath of the derailment. The Democratic president has said he will visit at some point, and the White House notes that Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg went to East Palestine and has pressed for increased safety protocols for trains. The Senate bill also touches on a disagreement between railroad worker unions and operators by requiring train crews to continue to have two people. Unions argue that railroads are riskier because of job cuts in the industry over the past six years. Nearly one-third of all rail jobs were eliminated, and train crews, they say, deal with fatigue because they are on call night and day. Shaw said Norfolk Southern has gone on a hiring spree in the past year, but he didn't back a requirement to maintain two-person crews on freight railroads. He pointed to over $1 billion the company spent on safety last year, but he acknowledged that Norfolk Southern also spent more than $3 billion buying back its own stock and recorded a $3.3 billion profit in 2022. I am committed to making Norfolk Southern safety culture the best in the industry, he told the Senate paddle. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts rejected Shaw's talk of safety after a recent string of incidents, including another derailment last Saturday near Springfield, Ohio, and the death of a conductor this week at a steel plant in Cleveland. County Carbon Reduction, Funding Backs Concrete Aid Projects A coalition of cities and counties in the western U.S. has awarded $389,000 to four projects aimed at fighting climate change by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere through the production of concrete. The Four Corners Carbon Coalition, a partnership between Boulder County, Flagstaff, Arizona, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, pools resources to provide grants to accelerate carbon dioxide removal, project deployment, and business development in the Four Corners region, according to a news release from Boulder County. Carbon dioxide removal is necessary because carbon dioxide reduction alone will not end the climate crisis, the release stated. Concrete production is responsible for more than 7% of the world's emissions and is the second most consumed product globally after potable water.
Through a competitive application process, the coalition received nearly $800,000 in funding requests before selecting four organizations for grants. Carbon Built, Citizens for Clean Energy Incorporated, Minus Materials, and Travertine Technologies. The Four Corners Carbon Coalition is a shining example of how local governments are acting together to fight the climate crisis, said Susie Strife, director of Boulder County's Office of Sustainability, Climate Action, and Resilience, in the news release. Pooling resources can amplify innovation and the creative deployment of the integration of carbon removal and concrete. These awardees will turn their breakthroughs into real-world projects right here in the western United States, and we are thrilled to provide seed funding to catalyze this work. The projects selected are Carbon Built will work at a facility in Arizona on the world's first project using atmospheric carbon to produce ultra-low carbon concrete. The resulting concrete will have 70 to 100 percent less embodied carbon than traditional concrete. Citizens for Clean Energy Incorporated will demonstrate hempcrete construction by building carbon-negative wall panels for a two-story office warehouse in Durango. This construction will sequester carbon through a tip-up hempcrete structural panel system as well as through biochar used in the building's cementitious materials. Minus Materials will begin a regenerative quarry pilot project using algae to convert atmospheric carbon dioxide into organic biomass and biorenewable limestone. Travertine Technologies will generate carbon-negative precipitated calcium carbonate using waste feedstocks from the uh, mining and fertilizer production industries. In this project, the team will produce and characterize a series of cubes or blended cement mortar that incorporate CNPCC to replace ordinary Portland cement. The aim of the project is to demonstrate the beneficial use of travertine CNPCC in the production of low-carbon intensity cement binder for permanent carbon dioxide removal and sequestration. Around the Front Range, Boulder, Centennial Middle students shine in essay contest. Three students from Centennial Middle School won first through third place in the third annual Boulder Valley School District and Historic Boulder Essay Contest. Sixth grader Evelyn James won first place in $600 for an essay on Long's Garden's Legacy. Eighth grader Madeline Cass won second place at a $200 prize for an essay on Boulder Bookstore. Eighth grader Tatiana Harms won third place and a $100 prize for an essay on Lucky's Bakehouse. Mead. Emergency crews fight barn fire. Emergency crews battled a barn fire near Mead, according to a post from Mountain View Fire Rescue on Thursday. The post at 11 a.m. said the fire was north of Colorado 66. Officials said smoke from the fire will be visible for miles and asked that residents avoid Weld County Road 32. Platteville Gilcrest Fire Protection District and Frederick Firestone Fire Rescue are also on the call. Erie. Free books available for kids through Rotary Club Partnership. The Erie Rotary Club has partnered with the Dolly Parton Imagination Library to provide free books to children to promote literacy and a love for reading. According to a press release by the Erie Rotary Club on Thursday, the club will be working with local organizations and community members to encourage families to sign up for the program. Each month, participating children up to five years old will receive a new age-appropriate book every month. The children can keep the book and share it with their family. To sign up for the program, visit the Erie Rotary Club website or contact the club directly. Englewood. Man jailed on child porn charges. 
Englewood police and mental health responders conducting a welfare check on a 73-year-old man last week arrested and jailed him because they found evidence of child pornography, the police said in a media release statement. The Englewood Police Department issued the statement Wednesday saying they have arrested and jailed Homer Daniel Lewis of 1401 East Girard Place as a suspect. Lewis was arrested and jailed March 2nd on suspicion of sexual exploitation of a child after officers and mental health responders contacted him and entered his residence, the statement said. Lewis was released on a personal recognizance bond by an Arapahoe County court, police said, but he failed to appear Wednesday for his court date. He was charged formally with five counts for sexual exploitation of a child, and the court issued a warrant for his arrest. Sexual Assault Therapist Accused of Targeting Juvenile Clients a former Boulder therapist was arrested after police said he sexually assaulted two juvenile sisters who were clients about 20 years ago. Mark Hockwender, 72, was arrested Wednesday on two counts of sexual assault on a child by a person in a position of trust, pattern of abuse. Hawkwinder was released on a $25,000 personal recognizance bond and is set for a formal filing of charges on Wednesday. According to an affidavit, two sisters came forward and told police Hawkwinder sexually assaulted them while they were children and Hawkwinder was in his 40s. Hawkwinder initially was treating the girl's father when he became a sort of family therapist. He then began nude massages, baths, and then sex with the girls that began when they were in middle school or high school. The sisters said Hawkwinder groomed them and that they were not aware of the other being abused until they discussed it as adults. The assaults occurred sometime after August 1999 at Hawkwinder's home, offices in Boulder and Westminster. A letter was sent to the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies in 2020. According to online records, Hawkwinder retired in 2021 and surrendered his license rather than fight the allegations of romantic relationships with clients. Boulder Police said in 2020 the women also came forward to police, which sparked a long-term investigation involving multiple families. Officials are concerned there may be more victims. Anyone with information is asked to call Boulder Police Detective Carrie Lutz at LutzC at bouldercolorado.gov or 303-441-4374 and reference case 2011516. Researchers find diseases survive in dry climates. Colorado's dry climate is ideal for airborne viruses to survive, according to a new study published in PNAS Nexus by researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder, potentially explaining why people who live in dry climates are more susceptible to such infections. This study, which incorporated a live coronavirus that does not cause COVID-19 rather than bacteria or fungi, showed that airborne viral particles in artificial saliva remain infections for nearly twice as long in a drier climate than in a humid one. The research was conducted by watching how the virus in in artificial saliva reacted to different relative humidity climates. The researchers set the humidity inside a biocrosol chamber to 60%, 40%, and 25%. At 60% and 40% humidity, the number of virus particles in saliva dropped by half in an hour. At 25%, which is Colorado's average relative humidity, it took two hours for the number of particles to drop by half. This study is very relevant to Colorado because we have such low relative humidity, study author Marina Nieto Caballero said.
We were honestly not expecting that lower relative humidity would double the infectious potential of the virus. That was something that surprised us. The study also found that at lower relative humidity, saliva has a significant protective effect on airborne murine coronavirus because the saliva formed a gelatinous shield around the particles, providing extra protection. Mark Hernandez, the study's senior author, operates a lab at CU Boulder known for its chamber that aerosolizes bad stuff such as whooping cough and tuberculosis. Hernandez got the opportunity to do this study in 2020 during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic. Philanthropists donated money to Hernandez to study the virus, not to work on developing a vaccine, but to research how the pandemic was spreading. While Hernandez donated some of the research money to provide Colorado elementary and secondary schools with air purifiers, most of it went to adapting his lab to the new study. Hernandez said the study got two strokes of luck, a specialized instrument that is able to catch airborne microbes becoming available just in time for the study, and an Uruguayan virologist getting stuck in Colorado due to COVID-19, making him available to join the research team. The new instrument improved the quality of the team's research because it better protected the quality of the collected microbes for counting than previously available instruments. That quality helped improve the accuracy of the team's findings on infectious levels. Eddie Fuques Villalba, now studying for his PhD in microbiology at Oregon State University, was the perfect addition to the team. Hernandez said, pointing to his work with viruses during his undergraduate studies in Uruguay and working with earlier coronavirus strains and their effects on chickens. Hernandez's team also included three former CU students who returned to participate in the study, including Nieto Caballero, now a researcher at Colorado State University. To combat virus survival rates in dry climates like Colorado, the study suggests increasing the use of air filters and ventilation in rooms as much as possible. We need to learn to adapt and you see it everywhere. Climate change, energy, health, right? Hernandez said. Civilization needs to learn to adapt to these major changes, the pandemic just being one of them. Proposed abortion laws. State laws to expand access, protect providers and patients. Colorado Democratic lawmakers introduced a package of three bills Thursday that, if passed, would increase and protect access to abortion and gender-affirming care in the state. The proposed laws expand upon lawmakers' passage of a 2022 law codifying the right to abortions at any stage of pregnancy after the U.S. Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision guaranteeing the right to abortions. The bills are starting in the Colorado Senate and they aim to put a stop to disinformation and deceptive practices by crisis pregnancy centers, protect patients and providers who have abortions and gender-affirming care from threats from other states, and require insurance coverage for reproductive health care as previously reported by the Denver Post. Y'all felt the rage that so many of us experienced in our bodies and in our bones that the Supreme Court of this nation would so wholly undermine our ability to make decisions about our own bodies, said Julie Gonzalez, a Denver Democrat and bill sponsor, said at a news conference at the Capitol. The court's ruling led lawmakers and advocates to get work, she said. Cobalt, Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, Planned Parented, and New Era Colorado worked with lawmakers to craft three bills. Here's what each would do if it became law. Prevent the state from recognizing or engaging in any criminal prosecutions or civil lawsuits for anyone who receives, provides, or assists in abortions and gender-affirming care.
It also prevents state employees from participating in any such interstate investigations. Limits surprise building and require coverage for reproductive health care and treatments, including abortion, sterilization, and sexually transmitted infections. It also expands access to contraceptives and lets patients use Medicaid transportation for abortion services. And it allows any authorized provider to offer HIV medication, not just pharmacies. Prohibit using deceptive advertising by crisis pregnancy centers and designate providers offering so-called abortion reversal medication as unprofessional conduct. Abortion is legal in Colorado, but legality does not equal accessibility, said Representative Elizabeth Epps of Denver and one of the bill's sponsors. Our lower-income communities and Coloradans of color face larger barriers and a disproportionate lack of access to protected health care. Epps noted that Colorado is one of a few states that offers abortion care in the region, making it among the last line of defense to protect reproductive rights for residents and those who come to Colorado for these services. Emma Bunker DAM removes name from gallery, returns $185,000. In January 2018, Emma C. Bunker and the Denver Art Museum reached an agreement, one that would etch the longtime donor and board member's name on the institution's walls for half a century to come. The esteemed scholar who helped the Denver Museum build its Asian art collection over six decades would donate $125,000 to the museum's Vision 2021 capital campaign, a project to renovate the North Building and expand the museum campus. Two of her children would chip in another $60,000 combined. In return, the Denver Art Museum agreed to put the bunker name in three-dimensional lettering on a gallery wall, displayed in a prominent location until 2071. But five years to the day after Bunker put pen to paper on a deal that would cement her legacy in the Mile High City for decades to come, the museum notified the Colorado Attorney General that it planned to remove her name from the wall in the Martin Building and give back all the money. The museum's attorney in a January 25th letter obtained this week by the Denver Post could no longer abide by the naming agreement due to mounting evidence that its respected donor, who died in 2021, aided a criminal enterprise. The letter was sent nearly two months after the publication of a year-long investigation by the Post that found Bunker helped her close friend and collaborator, Douglas Latchford, sell and loan looted Cambodian relics across the globe. In light of Bunker's long involvement with Latchford, connection to pieces with false provenance, documents indicating that she intentionally provided false provenance, and related issues, the museum has determined that it is no longer willing to abide by the naming agreement, the museum's lawyer, Heidi S. Glantz, wrote in the letter. Now the Bunker name has come down, Denver Art Museum officials confirmed Thursday. The six-figure donation was returned to her estate and children. This action, approved by the museum's board of trustees, follows evidence that former museum trustee and volunteer Emma Bunker participated with indicted art dealer Douglas Latchford to mislead the museum into acquiring looted and illegally trafficked works of art, the museum said. In a statement released Thursday, Along with the naming agreement, Bunker also donated nine artworks to her beloved museum, pieces she promised had not been imported or exported into or from any country contrary to its laws. At least six of those works are under investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice. The museum wants to give back the rest, either to their countries of origin or to the Bunker family. All told, the removal of Bunker's name and monetary return represents the most significant action taken by the Denver Art Museum since the Post's investigation outlined the scholar's integral role in an international art looting scandal.
We hope this marks a turning point for the Denver Art Museum Bradley J. Gordon, a lawyer spearheading Cambodia's global request to reclaim its heritage, said Wednesday. It starts to recognize the terrible harm Emma Bunker and Douglas Latchford did to an entire nation. Three of Bunker's children did not respond to requests for comment or declined to speak to a reporter Wednesday. A scholar's role examined. The Post series found Bunker was hardly a passive player in Latchford's scheme to sell stolen Cambodian relics for huge profits. The Bangkok-based collector and dealer over the years accumulated one of the world's largest private collections of Khmer antiquities, many of which authorities say were plundered during Cambodia's bloody civil war by bands of Khmer Rouge soldiers. Latchford, meanwhile, said these thousand-year-old artifacts to wealthy foreign collectors and prominent museums such as New York Metropolitan Museum of Art and he couldn't have done it without his trusted confidant in Denver, the Post's reporting found. Emails taken from Latchford's computer and shared with the Post show Bunker overtly discussing how to forge signatures on documents needed to transport loaded works. She co-authored three books on Khmer art that experts say were necessary for Latchford to legitimize and move his plundered pieces around the globe, and she repeatedly vouched for falsified provenances, antiquities, ownership, history. Bunker's association with the Denver Art Museum also allowed Latchford to use the Mile High City Museum as a way station for these priceless South Asian relics serving to sanitize them for sale to future buyers, the Post found. Latchford sold, loaned, and gifted 14 pieces to the museum, deals that Bunker shepherded along. Only the Met had more Latchford pieces in its collection than Denver. The Colorado scholar who died at age 90 is named or referenced in five civil and criminal cases related to trafficking stolen art, though she never was charged with a crime. A federal grand jury in New York indicted Latchford in 2019, accusing him of pilfering Cambodia's cultural heritage. He died in 2020 before he could stand trial. The Denver Art Museum, through last year, defended its association with Bunker and her decades of financial and scholarly contributions, despite growing evidence that she collaborated in Latchford's illicit dealings. Chasing Aphrodite, a blog covering the movement of stolen uh, antiquities, detailed Bunker's questionable involvement with several pieces at Denver's museum in 2012. The New York Times identified Bunker in 2017 as a co-conspirator in a scheme to doctor provenances or ownership histories to allow stolen Cambodia antiquities to be sold on the open market. Public court documents referencing Bunker's role in Latchford's operation were available a decade ago, repeatedly mentioning a Colorado scholar. Only now is the museum reckoning with Bunker's past. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder, Longmont, and Northern Colorado News. My name is Jerry Jengra. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the Anxious Foundation. Strengthening individuals and communities to improve the quality of lives. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.